This is David Bernstein, founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. The JILV supports liberalism and opposes the imposition of critical social justice ideology in the Jewish world. Check us out on JILV.org and subscribe to the SpeechCast wherever you listen to your podcasts. The SpeechCast is a joint venture of the JILV and the Speech Project of the Jewish Journal. I'm really pleased to be with... uh, a friend and uh, a colleague, Isabella Taborowski. Um, Isabella is a research fellow at ISCAP on anti-Semitism. Um, she is also a senior programming officer at the Wilson Center in Washington. Um, you're living in Israel, right, Isabella, right now Correct. in Jerusalem. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, how's that? You're, you're, uh, what, what brought you to Jerusalem? So I came here sort of taking advantage of the of the remote work opportunity which was uh, which came with corona and i came here to do research that i've wanted to do for a long time uh, there is a library in jerusalem the national uh, the israel national library i think it's called uh, where they really have all of the uh, in all of the books that I need, uh, and of course my topic is Soviet anti-Zionism and contemporary left anti-Semitism. And there, you know, I spend my books reading Soviet anti-Zionist tracts, so which I can't call it joyful, but it's really intellectually stimulating and exciting. Wonderful. So we've talked about um, about your view on the collectivist idea within Soviet Union, within other communist countries, perhaps China as well. Um, And um, I'm I'm wondering how you look at, given that history of yours, your personal history, and also your sort of worldview, how you look at the present moment in the United States and the West, the present ideological moment. Well, look, I think, I think that it's, it's I, I don't feel that we are in any kind of a definitive period yet. I think we're still in a transition period from, uh, you know, what I used to view simply as a classically liberal kind of Western American society to something else. And what this something else is, we still don't know. And we use the term, uh, uh, the what is it? <laughs> what, what is the term that, uh, that we just discussed? Uh, transi- uh, Oh, uh, successor ideology? Successor, right, successor ideology. Um, I think that we're still on its way and perhaps, and maybe it hasn't quite formulated itself yet. Maybe there are still some battles that we need to fight out because it seems to me that, you know, a year ago, it seemed like the woke ideology, for lack of a better term, right? The woke were kind of winning the culture war. Today, perhaps it's less so certain. I mean, there's been a pushback and there are some articles being written now about how um, how maybe maybe it's, it's kind of waning. Um, I'm not so certain because I do think that people who bring this ideology with them are true believers, you know, that they're, they're very radical and, you know, people who acquire this kind of political beliefs that rise to the level of faith, really, uh, they rarely give up. Uh, because it constitutes the core of their being and it gives them a sense of purpose. And so I don't I don't think that the battle is over. Um, I think that there is some defensiveness, you know, that we've seen with regards to critical race theory. But I think that the, there'll be a regrouping and I think we'll, there'll be more battles to fight. Uh, but what, you know, what I see people doing is, you know, talking about fighting for um, classical liberalism and a 
sort of defending what was and attempting to return it, I don't think that, that we can return to what was. I think that whatever happens, it will be something different. Hmm. Yeah, so what my theory, and I wanna try it out on you, is that, um, is that we, you know, I think uh, the forces of liberalism are, are winning in the polls. And I think that the election results we saw, not just in Virginia, but around the country are, are proof of that, that Americans, and not just, you know, white Americans, but really Americans of all ideological and, uh, I mean, of all um, ethnic stripes, really do not like this ideology, don't want to be walking on eggshells. So, so it's repudiated the polls, but it's very hard to get institutions to disassociate themselves. Many, particularly in the wake of George Floyd, uh, made some commitments. Um, they maybe hired a DEI director, let's say, and um, and they basically allowed that person or that group or that persons to dictate how their, their organization was going to think about issues of diversity and pluralism and the like. Um, and now, even if they are taking a second look at it and saying, well, maybe we went too far, maybe this ideology is taken too hold, it's very hard for themselves to let go. It's what uh, I think the writer Jesse Sengal called identitarian deference. They've deferred, they've sided on the dotted line, and now they can't get out. What, what, do, you, what do you think about that? Look, I think that that's, that makes a lot of sense purely on an institutional level, because once an institution commits to a position, uh, to a person, and it's particularly, optics are really important in the current environment, and, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion sound really excellent. Um, and so once you have committed to that, uh, it's hard to then divest from that, because if you divest, then the optics are also bad. It is as if you are against, you know, the, all of the things that I think we all agree on and aspire to. And I think that it's, it's just that as we've seen the implementation of these ideas becomes really pernicious and, and very, very toxic. That's the problem. But the optics I think is what will prevent people from doing it. And I think that in the end, what will happen uh, is that uh, those who disagree with these values um, will have to create their own institutions. And I think that What's interesting, I've been thinking lately, noticing how, you know, there are people, uh, kind of prominent, well-known journalists and content providers moving to other states, right? Moving from the coasts, for example, um, to Florida or to Texas, uh, or moving from New York to Florida because they partly because they feel that uh, they don't like the way the states handled um, the COVID and how they continue to handle COVID, and partly I think and I think that once they move there, I, I just think it's interesting that some of the uh, it may I wonder if it may, might not create a shift away from what, where we know cultural production has been really concentrated until now, which is on the coasts and particularly you know New York. New York City, right, uh, California, LA, San Francisco, if maybe that will begin to change, if maybe cultural production will also start moving elsewhere with these people, that would be really interesting to see. I think that's a process that would be really interesting. Mm. Yeah, it might really change for the pol political dynamics over time, social dynamics over right. time. Uh, right. Fascinating. So you're, you've really studied very closely anti-Semitism. You've also obviously studied the, the former Soviet Union. Um, and the collectivist mindset. Um, what what have what about your experience growing up in the former Soviet Union and studying it as closely as you have? 
Um, how has that shaped your views on anti-Semitism in the current moment? Well, look, I mean, first of all, um, I think the, the obvious link there is that we're talking about anti-Semitism, the kind of anti-Semitism that is not grounded in the exclusion of Jews by virtue of race or religion. This kind of anti-Semitism has now, I mean, it obviously exists, but it's very much fringe. It's very much unaccepted in polite society. That kind of anti-Semitism, I think, has little cultural um, kind of influence or legitimacy. Um, but it's what we're seeing today in America is the kind of anti-Semitism that we had in the, in the Soviet Union, which is kind of left-wing, I mean, I hesitate, I, I, have, I hesitate to say left-wing actually because it's more complex than that, but, but anti-Semitism that poses as kind of um, being opposite the right wing and uh, based on anti-Zionism, kind of positioning itself as political as opposed to based uh, purely political and therefore is not being anti-Semitic, right? We, we hear a lot about how anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. Um, and I, I think a lot about these parallels, and I think um, these parallels allow me to imagine things or foresee perhaps things. So far, a lot of things that I have, um, I, that I foresaw are coming to be true, um, that third and fourth generation American Jews don't necessarily foresee or expect because they are, they are comfortable and used to uh, making parallels with World War II or Hitler's Germany. And mm. as long as anti-Semitism does not remind them of you know, Nazi Germany, then I think they feel comfortable. And I just think right. it's very dangerous. Hmm. Yes. So in what way does this version of anti-Semitism that we're starting to see in parts of the progressive left, in what way does it resemble or in what way might it be dissimilar from the Soviet-style anti-Semitism that you knew? Well, the one way in which it is different is that it's not state-driven, right? In the Soviet Union, it was state-driven um, and imposed from above. And this is what's so interesting about the current moment to me as I watch it, is that this ideology spreads just like the woke ideology, by the way, right? And whatever, for lack of a better term, cancel culture. Nobody is imposing it from above. It's sort of spreading through grassroots. Um, what's similar is the very language and the very vocabulary. You know, Zionism is racism. I mean, it's a Soviet slogan, right? Zionists are fascists. So Zionists are Nazis. Like all of these uh, slogans, I, I'm, I know them from the Soviet Union um, and, and they carry a meaning that's, um, that I think people who use them don't fully understand. There is sort of a layer of anti-Semitism built into it, anti-Semitic thought built into it that, that the progressive idealist young college students who use them don't even realize. Semitism and anti-Zionism. Well, I mean, I think that the woke ideology, again, for lack of a better term, I mean, I think it has, I think that the Jewish question, quote unquote, is at the heart of it, right? I mean, they have decided that Jews are part of the oppressive class and support, um, not even a class, that they're part of their oppressors, right? That they are part of the white supremacy and they support white supremacy. 
And, and I think somehow Jews become the center of their attention, right? The, the attention all goes there in part, I think, because the rejection of Israel and Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state is at the heart of this ideology. I mean, it's truly, it's very, very heavily fused with anti-Zionism uh, as kind of, I don't even, look, I, I mean, anti-Zionism is not an opposition to Zionism that we know uh, because it's not an opposition to Zionism. Most people who advocate these ideas don't even know what Zionism really is. Right. They couldn't name like five basic concepts from Zionism. They are reacting or responding to their own imagination, their own imagining of what, Zionism is and what Israel is. And so in that sense, just like it was created by the Soviets, it's a conspiracy theory, uh, just a conspiracy theory in which Jews are called Zionists. Uh, the tools are the same, the language is, is the same. Uh, and I predict that the outcomes for the Jews will be the same. We already see it happening. Jews are already being excluded uh, on the grounds of being, being labeled Zionists. So that's that's an anti-Semitic outcome right there. What do you think the Jewish community should do differently than it is doing today in order to counter the threat? Well, I think it needs to understand it first and foremost. I think that it needs to, I think it needs to understand the history. And it's 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 so interesting to me that American Jews of all people have not learned this history because they played such a crucial role in the Soviet Jewry movement, which was about helping Soviet Jews um, fight the, uh, kind of rise up against the anti-Zionism that was at the heart of the Soviet Union, right? And ultimately leave, but also a big part of it was regaining Jewish identity. And so I think that part of the reason American Jews are not making this link is that in, during the Cold War, it was all called anti-Semitism, right? It was all referred to, we talked about Soviet anti-Semitism, American, and if you, if you read uh, history books or even coverage, a lot of times people didn't bother making that distinction, anti-Semitism versus anti-Zionism. It was clear that the Soviet Union was anti-Semitic. It didn't need extra proof just because it used the anti-Zionist language. Nobody was fooled. Everybody understood what the real meaning of that was. And so I think that today when the anti-Zionists come and they say, look, we're not anti-Semitic, forget about it. You know, forget all your stories about anti-Semitism. We are simply anti-Zionist. And for some reason, American Jews buy into it. They don't challenge it. They don't see a couple of steps ahead to understand the meaning of this. If they allow it, what will happen to them? Um, so I think that first and, first and foremost, there has to be an understanding of, of that story and that history. And then we have to think strategically, maybe some his, the historical experience can also help us come up with the right strategies for how to fight it. Uh, Soviet Jews, refuseniks, uh, the activists inside the Soviet Union said very clearly that anti-Zionism that we hear from the Soviet Union, you know, the, from the authorities, the anti-Zionist rhetoric that we hear, is anti-Semitic rhetoric, we see it in our lives. So perhaps turning to those lessons, I mean, I know that this is not, we're all looking for quick solutions, but I don't know if there are quick solutions to this, just like I don't think that there are quick solutions to the penetration of woke ideology in, in American institutions. Let me put out another theory though as well. And that is that it is going to be very hard 
for American Jewish organizations that have been in the business of countering anti-Semitism over the years to actually figure this one out, not just because they're sort of um, not fully aware of the history, but because it involves the it involves an ideology that many of them have sort of accepted, at least in a soft form, that many yeah. of them have sort of bought into DEI ideology or have uh, instituted in their in their organizations. And um, and now when you're saying, well, this idea of relating identity to power and privilege, that is actually problematic in and of itself. That's an ideology that you bought into is giving rise to anti-Semitism. It's very hard for them. I mean, for the same reasons yeah. we talked about, um, you know, identitarian deference in any institution. This is in a way, that, uh, this is in a way a, a problem that they've already signed on the dotted line on and now they're having trouble disassociating themselves if they're actually taking this problem seriously from an ideology that they're themselves practicing in a way. I think that you're correct. I mean, look, I think that, um, you know, I've been reading a book by, um, an, by someone who was an activist in the Soviet Jewry movement in America, um, Pam, uh, Pamela Cohen. She's just written an excellent book called Hidden Heroes. And what I was thinking about, and she writes about it, is that perhaps that in the Soviet Jewry movement, the organizations that made the most difference were not establishment organizations. They were sort of rebellious little entrepreneurial uh, organizations whose founders and staff were really deeply committed to the cause, truly deeply moved. They did not have, I don't know, uh, some political relationships that they needed to preserve. They didn't have this, any kind of status mm. quo that they needed to preserve. And so they went all out and they staged performances and they interrupted Soviet events and they you know, they, they were not afraid. And so it made me think that perhaps we need to think about it, about the current moment in those terms as well. Yeah. And I think that, you know, like one of the organizations I'm thinking about, for example, is Club Z. I always talk about it. I've written about them. You know, it's a small shoestring budget organization that teaches, that was founded by former Soviet Jews as well. Uh, and they, once they realized that the establishment was not teaching their kids what they wanted uh, them to know about Jewish identity and Zionism and Israel, they just began doing it themselves and they're doing really, really well and they're capturing people's attention. I think that perhaps that's what's going to happen. What do you think? Um, I think that's happening. And look, I mean, I can even use my own organization, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values as an example. Exactly. I am able because I was set up to do this. We were set up to do this, to fight against this ideology. Now, if I yeah. were in a mainstream institution, and I have been in the heart of mainstream Jewish America, I mean, I've led, I've been head of organizations in, in the heart of mainstream America, I wouldn't be able to do the same thing. Why? Because I had a set of stakeholders that's too ideologically diverse to allow us to actually fight an emerging threat on one side of the political spectrum or another. So That's I right. think, for example, it's also harder to fight certain center-right threats that might emerge as well, because they're worried about upsetting a certain donor and, and yeah. the like, maybe a Trump yeah. donor. So you can't really talk about Steve Bannon on the right. And right. Um, and now that we have a, a threat of 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 woke ideology on the left, we were. Um, it's very hard for those institutions to fight that as well because they're going to upset their stakeholders on the on the center left, whom whom should understand the threat. Um, yeah, but but don't. 
or don't or don't want to or don't want to downplay it more than they should or are scared yeah. that by emphasizing the threat on the left that they're going to be empowering the right which i think is exactly wrong i think actually if you don't deal with your own ha- backyard then you're going to actually um deal you're going to actually empower the other side uh, yeah. but so yeah I, I agree i think that these institutions are not well set up although you know it may surprise us i mean you know sometimes over time you can change institutions you know um certainly some of the mainstream Jewish institutions that were that had a sort of single view on Israel, it was to you know, is to support Israel's view of, of peace and security at any time. Um, those those institutions have diversified their stance on Israel over time because yeah. they were pressured by some of these smaller emerging groups. Um, I think the same can be done here over time too. That you can see a change in those mainstream institutions, but it's going to take a while for for that to happen. That's my well, I, I agree. And I also think that the, the greater the sense of the threat, the, the quicker uh, perhaps eventually they will come around. So, for example, you know, I was one of those people who criticized the ADL for being mealy-mouthed when it came to left-wing anti-Semitism. And I think they have become a lot better. I think that uh, I see them really hitting things, uh, kind of hitting um, leftist, left anti-Semitism when it shows up in, in a really hard way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that there is hope for sure. But unfortunately, yes, uh, I mean, it means that the threat is now that it cannot be ignored. I think that the confrontation between Israel and Hamas in May uh, and, and what followed, right, the, the nearly pogrom-like atmosphere in the streets and, and on social media, um, I think that that opened a lot of people's eyes. Yes, yes. I, I suspect it has. And and the question is, can institutions, can mainstream Jewish groups divest themselves of some of what they might have been doing or continue to do around diversity, equity, inclusion that may be a factor in the fueling of these, of anti-Semitism? I mean, it's, it's, I know it's very hard for people to say that have been doing work on diversity, equity, inclusion and think that it is a, it is a force for good in society right. to then say, well, maybe this idea of relating privilege to identity is problematic. Maybe that's fueling the idea of Jewish privilege. Um, maybe it is. Maybe it is shutting down important conversations that are undermining liberal values in society. If that's the case, and we have a more illiberal society, that society is going to naturally be more anti-Semitic as well. Right. No, absolutely. Um, Look, and even in this, I also have um, kind of flashbacks to the Soviet system, which uh, attempted, of course, it was a very, the Soviet Union was a very multi-ethnic empire. And so they always, just like the Russian empire before them, tried to manipulate the ethnic composition of different organizations. And uh, I find it to be an extraordinarily regressive idea that you're going to be adjusting uh, you know, uh, sort of professions based on ethnic groups uh, that are in them. Uh, I, I just, it's just extraordinary because I also know how Jew- Jews were not the only ones who were excluded from certain professions in the Soviet Union. There were other groups as well. And once you get on that slippery slope, I mean, it becomes really, really dangerous. And I don't know if you've seen uh, the recent research from Heritage about how uh, so many DEI directors turn out to be actually anti-Israel activists. If you look at their social media activity, they are pro-China and anti-Israel. I'm speaking to the lead researcher in an hour. 
Oh, great. Wonderful. Yeah. Oh, I look forward to hearing that conversation because that was as clear as day. Like, wow. Okay. Yeah. Certainly, certainly uh, Jews are likely to suffer from this practice. Yes. So. Yeah. And, and, you know, it seems to me that it's sort of, um, as one person called it, an, an epistemic crime that once you basically buy into what we've called successor ideology, once you've said, well, really, there's only one proper way to think about such and such issue of whether it's diversity or whatever, you're creating a reality that makes it much easier to say all kinds of other bad things. You're creating a reality where you're, you're giving authority to somebody else to say, to define the world for you. And that, per, that those people can define it in ways that are extremely intolerant sometimes as well. So if you're saying, for example, that um, if, if you endow, let's say a, an organization, and I don't mean the whole movement here, an organization like Black Lives Matter to define what oppression is for the rest of society, and they start to, um, take positions that are just outrageous. Um, And it becomes very hard to, then you're actually increasing intolerance, you're increasing um, divisiveness, you're you're increasing crime, by the way, which will lead to all kinds of uh, ill effects in society. And I I feel like that's what this, the the worst part of this ideology, in my opinion, is not so much um, what it says explicitly about Jews, but it's about sort of undermining our ability to talk about issues in society, and that's never good for Jews. I agree. I agree. And I do think, I do think that people go beyond that. I think that beyond the, the lack of conversation, I do think that it will come to exclusion. Uh, I mean, we already see this conversations about reducing quotas for reducing the numbers of Asians, right, in certain right. institutions. And it's like, you know, this is where I go back to, you know, the liberal idea that I remember, uh, I mean, being so struck so powerfully when I came to America with the notion of individual agency and individual freedoms and rights, right? And your ability uh, to, you know, to work hard and go as far as you can uh, with it. I mean, if, if I am denied access to something simply on the basis of being Asian, then what does that mean? You know, what, what kind of a society are we in if, if an unchangeable characteristic determines my path in life? Uh, as an right. immigrant, I especially feel incredibly aware of how, uh, you know, in the 30 years that I've lived in America, you know, I mean, I came, I moved from being a person who came to America with $50 in her pocket to, you know, I mean, doing doing fine, you know, being and being integrated in the society and feeling like an American and, and all that. So so I just uh, I, I think it's incredibly regressive and incredibly dangerous. Mm-hmm. So I, I so I've been reading you over the last you know six or seven months. You've been writing for many years, I know, um, but you came into my consciousness six or seven months ago. And I'm sort of amazed that somebody who grew up in a foreign country can write such beautiful prose. And I, I know that you're not the only one. In fact, you're not the, even the only Jew from the former Soviet Union um, who um, Maxime Schreier also just writes like incredibly well for somebody who, I mean, not just for somebody, for anybody. And you do too. <laughs> and and I'm struck like how, how you work to develop that facility in the English language where you not only, I mean, speak beautifully and so forth, but you can write and put out a lot of writing 
How, <laughs> how did you develop that? How did? Oh my gosh, David. Well, first of all, thank you. You, you know how to find uh, your way to a writer's heart. <laughs> right, right. Um, I'm speaking well, the truth. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate it. I mean, first of all, for honesty's sake, I should say that I do uh, get copy edited anyway, but but everybody gets copy edited. I now understand right. even native speakers get copy edited. Um, look, I mean, honestly, I think uh, I think the more you do it, the more experience you get, the more you understand what words to pull in, what phrases work, you know, I, I still feel a lot of times hopelessly uh, like a non-native speaker, you know, sometimes I write a sentence and I think, my gosh, I can't tell, I can't tell if this is right or not, you know, oh. uh, but um, I don't know. I mean, look, it's, I think in a way, I think it's either the writing is a kind of thing that if, if you're, it, it doesn't depend on the language, that it's, it's a way of um, formulating ideas and a way of um, phrasing things. And if you can do it in one language, you can do it in the other. And then it's just, then it's just a question of learning grammar. Translation. Yes. <laughs> in, in a way, not always, but in a way. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, you're, you're terrific. Well, I, I appreciate this conversation. I think you bring really a unique set of experiences and ideas to this discussion and um, the you know and I and I hope and we didn't really get into this but I but I'd, I'd like to eventually use this as an opportunity to bring in more Jews from the former Soviet Union into this conversation I know you're doing some work around Zionism and I think also sort of the broader um, reality of what's happening in America. I think Soviet Jews in particular have so much to offer in that conversation. I feel like we should be leveraging those voices better. We would do. Um, and, and so I look forward to working with you and doing that in the coming days. Thank you so much, David. It's always great to, to talk to you and to be on your program. And I look forward to continuing. <laughs>